Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to luckylandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello! You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, the podcast where I usually speak to bands and artists about all the different jobs they've had along their way. Today is the 200th episode. 
of the podcast, I thought, well, I could speak to some people that, you know, I really hold in high regard. And I kind of realized, maybe this is a humble brag, but I do that all the time. And I wanted to do something special for this episode. So I went back to the nucleus of this idea, what I was thinking when I first came up with this premise of a podcast. And really, it was from hanging out with my mum, who's an author. She has spent a lot of time becoming an author, sort of tens of years doing it. And I thought, you know, as well as being a bit cutesy and what have you, I think this is actually a really nice conversation. I wanted to learn some stuff that I hadn't before and we did that, as well as get some funny stories from her. Anyone who knows me kind of well knows that my mum is always within calling distance. She's been so supportive of bands I've been in since growing up. You know, we were kind of the household that anyone was welcome any time, any day of the week. We'd practice in the basement, we'd be loud and yeah, she was very forgiving in that sense. So I want to celebrate her, especially as she's got her new book coming out. Well, she's got new books every year, to be honest. The one coming out this summer is called Coming to Find You. You can pre-order it now. She writes crime, family fiction. It's on Penguin Random House. So she's kind of a big deal, you know. She's brilliant. She's ace. Have a listen to this conversation. I hope you like it. And cheers for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. Supported by 2000 Trees Festival, which is a great independent rock festival in Cheltenham, just a few hours away from London on the train. And they've got some incredible announcements for their lineup in the last couple of weeks. Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes and Bullet for My Valentine are headlining for the old heads. 100 Reasons, Rival Schools, American Football, Bob Villain, The Bronx, Black Honey. Yeah, loads of good stuff. Actually, to sort of loop this back in, my mum used to go take me to see Gallows shows which Frank Carter would go absolutely nuts in and yeah, play at uh, an all-ages venue in St Albans, The Pioneer. Went there for an all-day a couple of times. They got a Gallows demo CD, which I, I wish I kept, but I lost it somewhere. Yeah, my mum, punk rock. This is 101 Part-Time Jobs. Oh yeah, if you want to go to 2000 Trees, you can get tickets from 2000trees.co.uk and if you use the voucher code 101POD at checkout, you can get 20 quid straight off your ticket. That's at 2000trees.co.uk. All right, here's Jane Corey, my mum, whose new book, Coming to Find You, is out this summer and you can pre-order it now on 101 Part-Time Jobs. Go well. Cheers. Mum, Jane Corey, welcome to 101 Part-Time Jobs. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so look, you know better than anybody about the premise of this podcast mm-hmm. because I was living at your house, feeling really bummed out, when my band was supposed to be on tour. But instead, I moved back to yours. You're very generous, very kind. You've always been so supportive of me and my mates playing music. You'd always have us hanging out in the basement when we were younger. But it was in that moment, living at your house, that I thought, this is shite. Because I'm working all these jobs that I'm no good at and my bosses hate me, but really I'm supposed to be doing something else. So I think that's the theme of the podcast, is that when people are so immersed and they have this real love, they have this need to do something, this need to make, to draw, to record, to write, you know, write or play instruments. But the world doesn't let you because you have to do lots of other stuff in order to survive. Yeah. Well, that brings back memories of me as a child, knowing that I always wanted to write a novel and being scared in case it didn't happen, in case I didn't get that opportunity, in case 
I never got published. I mean, as a teenager, I didn't know how you got published. I just knew I wanted to write a novel. And I read a lot. I And your, um, my parents, your grandparents had lots of books. And I used to read their adult books when I was really quite young. I can remember reading... Um, reading a story called No Love for Johnny when I was about 12. I'm sure it was totally inappropriate, but I remember that really clearly. That sounds naughty. And I just do recall thinking, this is scary. What if I can't do what I want to do? Yeah, it's terrifying. It is. Because then, like, what's it all for? You know, you go to jo- you go to school where... I actually liked it when I got to the sixth form and could do the subjects I wanted to do. And I mean, I was at a very academic day school, girls day school in London. And it was the kind of school where in those days, providing you pass two pretty tough entrance exams, you the fees that were charged were in proportion to your parents' income. And, and my parents didn't earn very much. Um, they, As I said, they were educated, but they didn't earn very much. They, In many ways, their lives had been changed hugely by the war. So they had very little money, but they did want to give me and my sister, your aunt, a good education. I haven't heard of that before, oh, a, right. a sliding scale private school. Yeah, well, it doesn't happen now. Um, it no longer applies to the school that I was at. So um, I just do remember thinking that you know, this is, this is what I wanted to do. But I had to pass, I had to go through hoops, like taking exams in maths and chemistry and biology and things that I absolutely hated. And also it was a very competitive environment. So I think I really only enjoyed school when I got to the sixth form and could do what I wanted to do. And when I, I made a really good friend who joined the sixth form, my friend Claire, and that was lovely. I mean, it's funny looking back on it because... You're a six times Sunday Times bestseller. And that's amazing. It wasn't a straight line. It wasn't really a linear story for you, was it? (laughs) Not at all, no. I mean, I, I wrote... I wrote 12 unpublished novels before my first novel was published. I started writing novels way before you were born, when your big brother was a baby. And I started writing... um just opening chapters. And in those days, you could send them straight off to publishers. You didn't need an agent. I mean, this is going back to the mid 80s. And I'd get letters back, encouraging letters, but but um, nobody took me on. And then I kept thinking that I really needed to write this novel, but I was also earning a living as a freelance journalist. So I worked as a staff writer for Woman's Own magazine. And then um, when William, your big brother was born, I turned freelance and I carried on freelancing, if you remember, all through your lives. Right to the present day, I'm still freelancing as as a journalist, but it was really the novel that I wanted to write. And then when you, um, when I was pregnant with you, I thought maybe I'd start that novel, but then somebody asked me to write a non-fiction book and, you know, it was money and we needed money. So I, I took that on instead. So I wrote my first full novel the first one that did not get published when you were three and you wrote the whole thing oh yes yeah and I got an agent on the strength of that which was very exciting so I thought oh this is easy and she couldn't sell it the title was Amersham Wives because we lived near Amersham at the time <laughs> that sounds like the new Baxter Jury song Aylesbury Boy about a journalist that swaps lives with um, an Amersham mother 
wife swap no not not not. well a life swap yes a life swap (laughs) not 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 a relationship swap (laughs) i mean what's it like right you know you wake up at 6 a.m i mean i I had flashbacks then when you said you went freelance and you were staying at home because it made it impossible to skive school Yes, it was rather good. I, I used to hate it when you lot were ill because it meant that I couldn't write. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's it like getting up at five or six in the morning, writing, kind of knowing in the back of your mind, this might not be for anything? But you just have to do it. You, you're, you're driven to do it because it's what your soul is telling you to do. Yeah. And, and I yes, I would get up early to write. I'd also write in the evenings, late at night and at weekends. And I just carried on. So when I finished a book, I would send it off to agents or publishers. I didn't spend long enough doing that. And I didn't spend long enough editing it, looking back. Um, And then after about six rejections, which actually is nothing. I mean, many people get loads of rejections and that's par for the course. But I would then start the next novel. So I wrote a novel a year. For 12 years. Were you pretty confident the whole time? Did that go up and down? No, I I was really depressed when they got turned down. But and I I never thought that I'd stop because I couldn't. Writing is like breathing. I I couldn't stop. But I did get dejected. And at the same time, I was writing articles for newspapers and magazines and making a living out of it. And it was an important contribution to to our dual income, you and your dad. And so, and journalism paid at yes, that time. You told me recently because I've been telling you, you know, since I was fifteen, mm. and you know, I was really lucky. I got my first commission at NME when I was seventeen, and you let me bunk off school so I could go to Belgium I'm sure and cover that we it. Really have that out loud, but yeah, I did tell the headmaster if you remember. I did tell, I did explain to him why it was important for you to do this. You were very supportive. You came in when they called me in to have a meeting and they called you in to all tell me off sort of from four different angles. You surprised them by having my corner. I I explained that it was a pretty amazing opportunity and that you would make up your homework, which you did. And I don't mean make up as in invent. I mean, (laughs) make up for it. But my point is that I didn't get paid anything for that. And I learned within the next 10 years that you don't really get paid as a freelance journalist unless you've really been doing it a long enough time or you get a bit lucky. In my experience, you didn't get paid, which is very different to your experience where you did get paid. Yes. I mean, I think the thing is, because this was the 80s, the mid 80s, um, a lot of redundancies were being made and magazines well, the magazines I worked for, relied more heavily on freelancers then. So a lot of my friends turned freelance about the same time as me. We were having our babies and, and we freelanced. And I wrote about child child issues, childhood issues. So um, I, I kind of became a parental specialist, which was a bit of a joke, really. But I, I used, used to write funny features about bringing up children. Um, if, if you lot did something crazy it was quite funny because it was always it always made good copy it was fun but it was crazy I mean it was I'd end up writing in the back of a pantomime for example I remember very it's a really embarrassing thing to discuss really to admit rather but I can remember taking you all to the pantomime you know with Jane your godmother my best friend and um, I (laughs) I took the latest novel that I was writing with me to proofread while you were all enjoying the pantomime because there simply wasn't time to do it. There simply wasn't time. I freely admit now that when I wrote the playlist, my column for the iPaper, I wrote most of it in the loos of where I was working at the time. I think you fit 
things in. You know, when you when you have these dreams, you fit it in. I mean, one thing I I think about you more and more is that I have this idea of an author in my mind who's got this leather-bound book, who's wearing that kind of sports jacket with the elbow pads. <laughs> you know, this you have a look of what an author looks like. And I, I think this thing that strikes me as I get older is that, you know, you're my mum, and so I have that viewpoint. But even to other people, when I see you interact with other people in Tesco or, you know, if we're on the train or wherever, is that you... You, you you don't think of yourself as this massively successful author that you are. You don't act like it. You're very modest. I was a really shy child, really shy, really embarrassed. And so I'm, I'm not the kind of person that would blow my own trumpet because there are a lot of a lot of really good writers out there. I just feel incredibly lucky because I think success depends on so many different things. A lot of it is luck. I mean, I was very lucky that in the end, I found the right agent who found the right publisher, who found the right editor, and that we clicked. And I did, before I get, got into the top 10 Sunny Times, I did write romantic fiction, if you remember. I mean, I was published... Sexy, um, Sexy stuff. I, I, was, I was published... Gosh, I mean, I had nine, nine different romantic novels that were published by two mainstream publishers. And they were what was called mid-list, which is, means that they didn't sell brilliantly, but they didn't sink. So they were kind of hovered in the middle. When that happens, quite often, mid-listers become casualties and your contract isn't renewed. And that's what happened to me. And I thought everything was all over. And at the same time, um, our personal lives changed, didn't they? So... Um, you know, I got divorced from your dad. And at the same time, I was writing a regular column for a prominent woman's magazine. And the column had been going for 10 years. And I wrote a column a week. And it was very much my bread and butter. And at the same time, that column ended because the editor left. And often new editors bring in new staff. And obviously, I had maintenance from dad, but I needed a regular source of income on top of that. And so that's when I saw an advert for a writer in residence of a high security male prison. So the prison was quite near where we used to live. And I knew of it and it, and it scared me. I, I, no way I wanted to work in a prison. Um, but your grandmother, who died before you were born, as you know, had a saying, which is necessity is the mother of invention. So yeah. you invent something because you need to. Right. And that was one of her favourite sayings. Well, I went for the interview, first of all, thinking I wouldn't get it. And then I did get the interview. And when I went there on that very first morning and went down onto the wings and um, was with people who had committed the worst crimes you can imagine and talked to them about the workshops I was going to be running, helping them to write stories, letters, depending very much on ability. And there was huge talent in prison. I mean, people have this idea of prisoners not being educated, but there was an enormous amount of writing talent in prison. I was, I was scared, but something very strange happened. Within quite a short space of time, one almost forgot you were in prison because words were a great leveller. People came to my classes, not because they had to. I wasn't part of the education system in prison where people had to attend my courses. They came, they had to actually be voted in by the communities in their wings. 
to to come. So they we were they were interested. And as I said, we had had some great talent, and I um, produced a book um, called "The Book of Uncommon Prayer," because when I was um, when I started at the prison, somebody said to me that when men get sentenced, they either find the gym or they find God, and the gym was very popular, and so was the chapel. People found help with the chaplain, and so I asked the prisoners and the staff to write either a prayer or a saying that got them through life. And we published a book called The Book of Uncommon Prayer. And that massively inspired you to start writing about... Well, I know what you're going to say. Not immediately. Not immediately. In fact, I never thought I wanted to write crime. I didn't want to write blood and gore. But what I was really interested in was the way in which prison affected family life. And it did it, as far as I could see, in two ways. So it affected, obviously, hugely the victim's family. And it affected the family of people who had been sent to prison because it could be a complete and utter shock. How awful yeah. to find that someone you loved had actually committed a crime. Or maybe this was the normal career path through that family's life. So I had men in my group's who literally learnt crime at their parents' knees because that's what the career path was. Did it give you some sort of empathy for or kind of understanding in the way that, you know, not everyone is uh, given a, you know, a straightforward life from the word go? I think it, it, it actually showed me a much more rounded, it gave me a much more rounded view of life. I was possibly quite sheltered at that stage you know like many people I'd read about people who'd committed crimes and I'd think how awful well I still think how awful but I've also learnt the background and I, and in no way is that excusing them and obviously it's totally wrong but it also made me think very hard about all kinds of things so one man come, came to mind he, he came up to me in my first week and he said I need you to know why I'm in prison and he said he would tell me how he'd been driving at 40 miles an hour when he should have been doing 30 and a car came out of the side road and he went into it and the driver died. Now, he'd been doing 10 miles more. He'd been driving 10 miles faster than he should have done, which is something that you know, a lot of people do. And he said that his crime, his punishment for him was knowing that he had killed someone, that he would have to live with that for the rest of his life. He also told me how his mother couldn't leave the house. And this is actually known as the silent sentence. It's it's the sentence that relatives carry when someone that they love has committed a crime. So it's easy, you know, it's simple to look back on and say, you know, that was your journey. You learnt so you learnt such on a personal yeah. level about, you know, this new subject mm -hmm. and you know, and you've carried that into your own creative process. You've carried that into your into your writing. Mm -hmm. But it took time, it did. didn't it? It took a few yeah, years it, to find your voice with that it did, stuff? It did. Because I'd, I'd been known for writing romantic fiction. And it, it, it was hard to break through. I wrote a book about prison and that actually got sold to a very small publisher and it, and it kind of didn't go anywhere. And then it was probably about three years after I left the prison that I started tinkering with an idea about a young woman lawyer who went into a prison to defend 
a murderer who, sorry, to handle the appeal of a man who'd already been sent to prison for murder. So when I worked in the prison, I would often see young lawyers coming in, and they seemed young to me, to handle people's appeals, because many people in prison would spend hours and hours in the library doing their own research, trying to trying to build up evidence about why they needed to be released. Right. And that inspired my husband's wife. And I wrote three chapters and I changed agents and I sent it to um, to three people. One turned it down. Um, another one said they wanted me to write something different. And then the third, the agent that I, that I went with and I'm still with and I'm really happy with and incredibly grateful to, um, took me on the strength of three chapters. And of course, I'd had so many knocks by then that I said to her, well, you know, what if you don't like it when it's finished? And she said, I will, which was the most wonderful thing. And right. she then sent it. This is my my wonderful agent, Kate Horden, and she then sent it out. And one day she rang about three months after she sent it out. She said, oh, Penguin is interested. Now, I didn't allow myself to get excited because, as I said, I'd had so many knocks. And these phone calls continued through the day it's gone to the next level. It's gone to a meeting. And actually, I was going up. We, we were living. We, I, by then, I'd moved to the southwest. And I was going up to London that day for um, a really big family dinner. And I didn't want to be late. I couldn't be late. And then they said to me, they want to meet you. And the rush was actually, I found out later, was because a big book fair was coming up. And, and, and the wonderful editor who bought it wanted to um, talk to me about it and hopefully get something sorted out before the book fair and in the end she came to my hotel literally just before I was rushing off and it was incredible we just clicked and she knew my book she'd only seen it you know for, she'd only had it for a few days but she knew my characters and we signed that week brilliant which was just fantastic and I've been with Penguin ever since and it's just you know it's amazing it's, it's been an incredible, a fantastic roller coaster. One hundred one part-time jobs. 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 One of the things that makes me really buzzed when you talk about that stuff and you have that day running up to London, and you get signed, and Penguin comes to your hotel and gets you to sign. You know, because there's a book fair coming up. The thing that makes me really excited about that. For me and for everyone I know and people I'm around is that, you know, I think I get scared of life being boring. And so when something happens when you're a bit older, mm -hmm. you know, is that okay yeah, to say? I'm and fine, you and you're. Yeah. <laughs> Like stuff's still exciting. You know, what a thrill. Oh, it is, it is, it is completely. I mean, it's amazing because how old was I? Um, I was 49 when I got my first book published, my first romance. And oh, heavens, how old was I when the first, um, well, I mean, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not shy by age. I'm 67 now. So I was. Um, you look great for it. You're very kind. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was 60 odd when I, when I got that first bestseller. Wow. Yeah. That's 59, great. 59. Um, but it is, it's really, I mean, the age is in the head, isn't it? I, I, I mean, it's really important that age is in the head. I mean, you know, I, I don't want, I don't see myself, I don't see myself as being older. I, I, I think there comes a time when you do realize perhaps you've only got a certain number 
of years to to carry on and, and do more things. But in a way, that's an incitement. You know, you want to do that. Anyway, I don't feel old. So. I sometimes think that I'm running out of time, you know, wanting to work in music and interview bands. I sometimes think, oh, you know, 31's a bit old to be getting on with this. <laughs> and on another, on another regard, I also have those kinds of bummer thoughts where I think, oh, I'm not good enough. Other people are better. Other people prefer that person to me. But I'm really trying my best, especially recently, to try and convert that into like a proactive energy yeah. and be like, all right, well, that all that stuff may be true. I may be not the best in the room. I may be, you know, not the youngest in the room, but actually that's going to make me try harder because exactly. I've got to try harder. Exactly. And, and, and you've hit the nail on the head then. So when I was your age, I had friends who'd started to get published as novelists. And I thought, I'm not doing it. You know, what's happened? I'm, 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 I haven't even got them. In fact, I hadn't, was I writing novels then? Yes, I was writing bits of novels. I don't think I'd finished my first novel because, you know, I was looking after you three children and doing my freelance work. So it was busy, 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 busy all the time. Yeah. But I was aware that people my age were getting published as novelists and I began to panic. I have to say that did frighten me. But when I look back, I can see that this was actually really important training ground. I, I often see those unpublished novels as my what I call my self-imposed apprenticeship. Right. So I was working for myself and teaching myself through the novels that didn't get published, teaching myself what to do better next time. That's something that comes up a lot on here because all these musicians, you need time. Yeah, you need, you need years. Power. And that is something that the industry doesn't give to you. And yet at the same time, while you're getting on with, quote, ordinary life in inverted commas, that's giving you the material to write or right, yeah. to make up music the music, uh, or, or to do it. So it's actually all part of it. It's really important. When you're freelancing or you're writing music or words or your journalist or whatever career you have that is a bit up and down you don't know exactly how much you're going to be making that month let alone maybe not even that year how how did you deal with you know that stress that I imagine you must have been putting on yourself at times probably not very well actually um how did I deal with stress okay so I think I ultimately believe that everything will be all right I believe that we need to be good to other people um it's hard. It's really hard at times when people aren't very nice to you. But how do I deal with stress? I write. I, I mean, I can remember when we moved house, when you and I went to um, into the rented house before we then bought another one, I can remember going into a corner while the removal men were there, opening my laptop and writing a short story. Um, and I, that's so I, great. Write, I write out my stress and actually that's something I haven't talked about much because before I wrote novels before I was accepted I, I started writing short stories for women's magazines and I still do that which is lovely and one of the magazines that I started writing for in the very early days my weekly um, is, is a magazine I still write for you know I love that connection that I've written for them for over 25 years yeah, that's amazing. And and it's not my weekly, but I don't know if you're writing for them, but when we were younger, there was lots of those magazines lying around on our kitchen table or like the kitchen worktop bit. And there were all those stories of uh, 
my wife got with my was cheating on me with my nephew you know every single combination of that my daughter was going out with my dad and it's like all of that stuff I think that kind of fucked me up you know I didn't write features like that I know but they, they were around well, those magazines I would read magazines because I was a journalist and like yeah I, gosh that's scary I mean, I'm really sorry about that but I didn't write features like that I know I know I know mind you one thing that I did do rather shamelessly was I was constantly writing about you all as children. And so you must remember times when photographers came down and took photographs, you know, my, my child's skateboards or my child's dessert. Also, it was another time when I did a piece on um, getting your child's portrait done. And I think it was the Telegraph that sent um, a painter down to, uh, to sketch William when he was little. <laughs> I'm glad we could be of service. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Thanks so much for coming on 101 Part-Time Jobs, Mum. Thank you for having me. One of the biggest inspirations for this was you, because I know you worked tons of jobs when you were younger. Before, you know, we talked about you being a journalist. Mm -hmm. You know, we speak about trying to get an agent and trying to get a publisher Mm -hmm. for your novel. Mm -hmm. There's a whole section of your life before that when you were trying to do that, but with journalism. Yeah, and, and actually one thing I would say, if anyone wants to get into journalism, is that I think I got that place on um, a journalist training course, which was um, then run by the Thompson, by Thompson organization. So, you know, I still pinch myself to this day that I got on it right for the university magazine. If you're at university or college, get onto the magazine and write, because I did go along to that interview clutching a whole load of clippings of articles that I'd written. I tend to end these episodes, mum, with asking people of a work gaff, a work <laughs> fail. I live in Deptford which is in Lewisham. Lewisham is great. The history of arts here is amazing. Dire Straits played their first gig around the corner. Squeezer from here. I love that you used to live in Blackheath yeah. up, the, up the hill. And Lewisham as well, remember? You worked a couple of jobs around then, waitressing. Oh, didn't no, you? I know what you're going to say. Okay. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> well, it's hap- it happens to everyone. Okay. Well, okay. So I've only ever been sacked from one job, and I was working as a journalist in London on this training scheme. I didn't have any money. I was broke. I needed to pay the rent. And I was renting at that time in Blackheath. And I took a job in a wine bar in Blackheath. And I was sacked because I was slow. I was. They put me in charge of chopping up peppers. I'd never even cut a pepper in half before. And um, <laughs> I didn't know you'd take the seeds out. And I was really, really so. And, you know, this hurts to the day. And I then went and got another job in a pub, which is a joke, um, because nobody taught me how to pull pints. But that was fine. They were very nice to me. Um, and they seemed to accept all the froth. But that thing <laughs> about being sat at the wine bar, that really hurts still. I still, actually, every time I chop a pepper up, 
I remember. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's great. We should have eaten more veg. You fed me lots of pizzas when I was younger. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> no, I love pizzas. Mum, are you joking? That's a kid's dream. <laughs> All right, Mum, thanks so much. Your new novel which is called Coming to Find You, is out this June? Yes, yes. And we haven't really said that it's set partly in the Second World War and partly in the present day. Two women who live in the same house 80 years apart. One is hiding in the house because her brother has been sent to prison. So she's living under the silent sentence. And she discovers that her grandmother's best friend lived in the house during the war. And the best friend was a member of Churchill's secret army. So this was an organization that helped to train ordinary men and women in guerrilla tactics to defend their area in the event of an invasion. Wow. And did they, so she finds his letters? She finds her letters. She find, I can't really tell you because it will spoil the plot, but yeah. All right. Yeah. And so how do, so they don't communicate? No, no, because um, they don't, it, it's, it's, it's not a kind of, it's not a ghost book because Elizabeth, who lived there in the Second World War, is now dead. But um, Nancy... That's one for another podcast, Ghosts, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Um, Nancy, the present day heroine, has her own issues and she discovers a pretty deadly secret that Elizabeth hid. She discovers that and that helps her decide what she needs to do in life. Brilliant. I mean, that sounds quite innocuous from first, because you know, because no one's that. There's no one actively killing someone in. Oh, there in the, is. In... There, are, there are a couple of murders. There are a couple of murders. Yeah, I don't murders. want to give any more away. And <laughs> it comes out in June, and it's published by Penguin Viking. Brilliant. So everyone listening to this, you've got to buy Jane Corey's book. Thank you. Which is called Coming Great. to Find You. Thank you. Great. All right, mum. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I love you. Having me. I love you too. This is 101 part-time jobs, 200th episode. Wow. I'm really honoured to be on it. And when I go back right. to the days in the cellar, it seems a long time ago. Playing some punk rock and eating some sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Thanks, mum. Bye. So there was Sunday Times best-selling author six times, Jane Corey, on 101 part-time jobs. I'm back with another episode later this week with Chapaka Wrestling. Before that, I'm going to do an episode of The Playlist where I talk about new songs that I'm loving. If you want to get in touch, Spotify have this new thing. It's like a Q&A. They've automated these questions being like, what did you like about this show? Or tell me how you're feeling today. Feel free to write back and say what you think that I should be listening to and adding to the playlist. Also, I realize I've been totally neglecting asking for reviews on Spotify. So if you're listening to this through the big green circle, please do follow this podcast and rate it. Give it, you know, three stars, three, four stars. I'll be happy with that. All right. See you tomorrow for an episode of the playlist, followed by an episode of Chapaka Wrestling. See you then. It's Cox Barra. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side Running around like a blue-ass fly I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate Every bleak minute I've been on the go Up and down the ladder like a fiddler's elbow I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.